there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song. A boiling river in the Amazon. A spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This is a show about difficult conversations and messy coalitions, and I can't think of anything messier or more difficult or more awkward than conversations about sex, which is what we are talking about today with Kim Cavill, who was on the show before to talk about the Trump administration's budget cuts that affected uh, comprehensive sex education. She's now here just as our expert. But before we get into the show, a couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, I am going to be at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas on September 23rd, which also happens to be my birthday. If you would like to see a live recording of that show, which will feature the guest Michael Steele, former RNC chairman, an actual good friend of mine, actual friend like this, you can go to texastribune.org slash festival. The second piece of housekeeping is to let you know that we are still taking questions about relationships and politics that maybe aren't necessarily also having to do with sex. And you can email the show with those questions uh, or comments or issues that you want to discuss with friendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's with friendslikepod at gmail.com. And also, this is a mostly fun conversation about questions that adults have about sex. But talking about sex can also be difficult because many of us have had negative and sometimes even terrible experiences with it. If that is something that you've been through or you think you might have a negative reaction to the things we're talking about, you might want to have a couple of numbers on hand. One of them is for the National Sexual Assault Hotline, and that number is 800-656-4673, which stands for HOPE. That's 800-656-HOPE. That is for the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. And they also have an anonymous online chat that you can uh, log on to if you would like. And that is at online.rain with two ends.org. And also, I love the crisis text line, which is 741741. You can text almost anything to that, and they will hook you up with someone who can talk you through whatever you're going through. What I like about that especially is they don't ask you to think of what you're going through as an emergency is if you're in emotional pain or if you're experiencing anxiety and you don't know what to do, they want to get you help before you reach a true crisis. So don't hesitate to get in touch with them. Kim Cavill, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back on. It's really great to be here again. We're going to start out with a question from Craig. In a world where pornography is so easily accessible, 
How should parents initiate productive conversation with our children with a goal of establishing realistic expectations of sexual relationships? What would you include in this discussion? And at what age or time would it be most appropriate for this topic to be discussed? Thanks. So this is sort of a, this is, I think figured this was a good intro because it's adults asking, you know, for kids, really. Yeah. Uh, it's not showing any adult ignorance except about how to talk about it. And you've also said this is one of the most common and most important questions that you field. Yeah, it really, this one is, um, this is, you know, I'm passionate about sex in, in general, but this is one of um, the topics within that umbrella that I am most passionate about because, um, you know, a, a lot of parenting, um, this generation of youth that's had, you know, the internet and smartphones um, really from the time that uh, they've been old enough to hold them. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a millennial, so I didn't really have a smartphone or use the internet in any way that, you know, I would recognize it today um, until I was in, you know, I was out of high school. And the generation after me and generations following me, you know, it's a really different experience. So um, this is, you know, we're, we're kind of all trying to figure this out together, both parents and young people, about what these conversations about sex and just about parenting kind of in the digital age are really going to look like. Um, and one of the most important things to talk about is about pornography, especially because um, the, recent, the most recent research we have actually pinpoints the average age of first viewing of pornography as 10 years old. Wow. So really, actually, the parents definitely don't know what the kids know. No, no. And that's kind of always always been a little bit true here <laughs> in the United States, but um it's it's just kind of exacerbated in this new realm of both because you can make the argument that now we're all kind of living two lives and trying to negotiate how those lives interact. We're kind of having a real life, you know, our day-to-day -day real life existence where face-to-face -face interaction happens, but then we're also having a lot of us um live kind of a second life online. And we're trying to figure out how those worlds interact with each other. And, you know, you can tell just by spending 20 minutes on Twitter that most of us don't really know what we're doing you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to that. And, um, you know, we can't expect our kids to know any better than us. And, um, you know, when, we, when it comes to safety online, when it comes to this conversation about online pornography, it's better to get ahead of it rather than try and fix it in retrospect. And because the first age of experience where kids normally have seen pornography is as young as 10, which, you know, understandably a lot of parents find really shocking, that means you need to have these conversations before your child is 10 years old. Wow. You can't just wait until your, your young person is 15 and then try and go back and have conversations after this person's already seen kind of four years worth of what the Internet can be in both a really great and a really horrible way. So when I talk to parents about having this conversation, which, you know, you just have to accept up front is going to feel a little awkward, but feeling awkward and persevering through that is, um, you know, one of the ways that we learn emotional resilience, which is a good skill. It's a good skill to show your kids, right? I mean, exactly. if nothing else, like this very having even going through with this conversation is actually a good lesson for them. That's exactly right, because you kind of have to set up if we're if we kind of set up the expectation of like, well, OK, you know, I'm more comfortable saying no and I can't talk to you about any of these more um, the messier parts of life and the shades of gray about life. Then, I, I'm, you know, we can't really expect our young people to grow into adults that will be able to have those conversations any better than we aren't already having them now. 
So um, when parents talk to their kids about porn in particular, it's really um, a series of conversations about two broader subjects. And the first one is more about how to be safe and responsible online. And there's a lot of really good resources uh, for that. And, you know, a lot of parents out of, out of you know, a fundamental fear for their safety and the well-being of their children kind of wanted to say, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to take your phone away or you're just going to have a flip phone. And um, what's the newest, most expensive, latest version of kids' parental control apps where I can just lock everything out? And that's not really the way to go. It doesn't teach moderation skills, which is something kids and adults really need to learn. And the other thing is that it ends up into this kind of, um, Cold War, really, of, you know, the fact that the Internet is just always going to be bigger than whatever new high-tech kids' parental control software is out there. Like, the Internet's just always going to be bigger, and you end up having to—it's kind of a battle of one-upsmanship when it really misses the point of what you're supposed to be talking about. So. You try to have conversations with your kids about how to be safe online, which means you go through the settings, particularly in iPhones, because parental settings are kind of hidden within general menus, and it's not so straightforward um, to show your your you know your, your your kids how to hide their location or you know when it when it is okay and when it is not okay to tag where you are and why that might be a thing that you don't want to do on a regular basis and um, how much information you share online how to privacy check your settings so people can see it. And interestingly enough, um, aside from there being a lot of nonprofits online that you can just do a quick Google search on with, you know, online modules to work through this, there's also lots of good resources um, through, you know, usually the public library Mm. as well. And sometimes, sometimes depending on where you live, also, also through the school system. So there are some good resources, but this is a thing that we need to get in the habit of doing with our kids. It's not just a one-off conversation. And I make the same argument about talking about sex in general. It needs to right. be a habitual sort of thing rather than you, you don't just have the talk and you then kind the of walk talk. away. Right. So right. I just want to just recap here. So you're saying because kids see this so young, 10 as uh-huh. being the average age, the first conversation you want to have is almost like a, a ramp on, maybe even before they're 10, as soon as they're old enough to kind of even understand onlineness. Yeah. You want to get them used to thinking about privacy and consent as just an online issue. Not consent about sexual consent, about what, what you share, what you share with the world and what yeah, you don't exactly. share. exactly. Rather than just kind of, and you know, I've got really young kids and, and I get it. You know, there's a lot of demands on our time and on tension. But rather than just putting on like guided access and then handing your kid the iPad for their half an hour iPad time or whatever it is you're allotting them, you know, you can you can show them what you're doing. Like I'm putting this on guided access and I'm doing this because it shuts these option, options off. And mm-hmm. I'm shutting these options off because these options, you know, aren't, aren't safe for you to use at this age. You can use these when you're older when I teach you how to do this. The other part of talking to kids about porn is about pornography itself. And, um, you know, the first thing that we need to be really clear about is saying to our kids and our young people that there is a huge difference between sex for entertainment and sex in real life. You know, that pornography, even as much as some pornographers try and make it look like, you know, for erotic value's sake, almost like you're ambushing a couple that doesn't know you're filming, 
that's not a thing that can ethically happen in the pornography industry. So even that, hopefully, if people are watching pornography that's been ethically produced, is a manufactured cinematic element. It's not actually real. Just like the sex that people are watching in GIFs on Twitter, which a lot of adults don't realize are freely available aside from age restrictions, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's not real sex either. It might look like real sex, especially when you're 10 and you don't really know what sex is. That is not real sex. That is sex for entertainment. And that doesn't, that that's not the same as sex in real life and sex face-to-face and sex in an intimate setting within the context of a relationship. Now, is it useful in this context because one of the one of the mysteries of our society is we're so much more okay with violence than we are with sex. Kids mm. have at this point at 10, in addition to having seen porn for the first time, they've probably been seeing superhero movies and and comic book movies and action adventure movies that have all kinds of violence. Television shows that have all kinds of violence in them. Yeah. And they yeah. Are, and they're taught we're we're pretty good about teaching kids that that's not real. Right. That's right. Yes, exactly. Is that a useful thing to tell a kid? Like, Yes, absolutely. Because we, we sometimes forget as adults because it's really hard to go back and imagine what our understanding was before we were an adult. Um, you know, the older we get, that's harder to do. But, um, for example, like my my oldest son, who's only six, um, we went to he, he really wanted to see the Spider-Man movie. I went to watch it first and I felt like it was it was going to be OK, especially since he'd seen Ant-Man. And he went and he was. Um, it turned out to have been a mistake. He didn't understand that the stunts, you know, were just stunts. He thought that Spider-Man really did get, um, you know, punched and kicked around. And he was emotionally distraught over the, you know, the fate of the characters in the movie. So I had to go back and kind of fix my own uh, parenting mistake and show him, you know, videos of the green screen and how, how those stunts were put together. But even that, you know, it's always easier to prevent, as I said before, than it is to go back retroactively and try and fix. And so we have to just be really careful that those conversations we're having about what it is to be entertaining, what you're seeing on the screen and how it is different and how it might be the same um, from what we experience in day-to-day life. And nowhere is that more important to say than when we're talking to our kids about sex because and, and about porn. Because, you know, without that conversation, there's no reason why our, you know, your average 10 or 11-year-old wouldn't look at this, you know, two-minute clip on Twitter or just even on Google image search and assume that that, that is just as real as anything else. So another kind of on-ramp is at some point, around 10, 9, whatever, when you are talking, when you have a discussion, hopefully even earlier about violence in mm-hmm. in movies and on TV, you have a good conversation about that. And that at some point can be an entryway to say, oh, and by the way, this is also true for sex scenes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know? And then, you know, the other thing that I really like to try and emphasize, which is more of a new conversation that, um, you know, this was always something that, you know, I had to push more aggressively when I, you know, in schools and community groups um, and kind of insist that I be able to speak about is the fact that we we do have to start talking not just about consent within the relationships, although, you know, we're still having to do a lot of work on that, but, but digital consent too is what I like to call it. And so my message um, to, to young people and particularly to to kids that, you know, are in the middle school range and definitely high school and above is to say, you know, digital consent is exactly the same as physical consent. And you don't get to transfer consent around on behalf of another person. So let's say, let's say you're in a, mono, you know, we'll set this up really well. Let's say you're in a monogamous relationship and um, you both love each other quite a lot and your partner sends you a nude. 
That is a one-time only consent, just as if that partner was consenting to sex. And just because, as we, as hopefully we understand, just because a person consents and says yes to sex at one point, it doesn't mean that's a yes to that same person, for example, forever. So I say it's the same in the digital world. So your partner sends you a nude. Um, you do not then have the ability or have the consent to be able to distribute that nude photograph on their behalf to anybody else because cons- consent is a one-time only kind of, I imagine it like an expiry date, you know, mm-hmm. it's a one-time only use like a ticket, then you have to get a new one and it's not transferable. And that's a really important thing for young people to understand, particularly because of, I mean, you can just, you yeah. know, there was a high school sort of in the sh- suburban Chicago area that just, you know, busted another kind of um, clandestine nude photo exchange ring. Uh, and we just saw on a national scale, the Marines, you know, right. just had to deal with this same kind of scandal. And I don't know why I'm still I'm so stuck on like finding ways like to into these conversations that are more in, that are might be less awkward for people, but mm. this is a good way you can talk about this consent not necessarily is about nudes if you if that's the way you want into the conversation because it's also yeah. true if your best friend sends you a silly picture of any kind, mm-hmm. right? Like you could forward that to everyone else in your friend group, but you know that's not cool. Yeah. Like, exactly. You know, you have to you should ask the friend first if she sends you a picture of like she tried on like a too small bra and it looks ridiculous right. and it's hilarious and you should laugh at it. You would ask her if you before you could share it, even though, you know, everyone else would laugh. Right. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. I don't know use bra, but like, you know, whatever. Like, I'm just trying to imagine like a silly but kind of, you know, not necessarily PG pictures. Yeah, of course. And of course. so you want, and also, this is just good civic, you know, kind of duty for a kid anyway to know, mm-hmm. right? Is you don't share pictures of anything, just, you know, helter skelter. You always yeah. ask permission, no matter if it's a nude picture or a silly picture or a picture of someone doing something compromising. You don't share it without that person's permission. That's just like being a good citizen of the digital world. Exactly. And, and, you know, we're sitting here saying this to each other as adults. And then, um, you know, it's kind of I, I view it as our moral and ethical duty as adults and as parents, aunts, uncles, um, you know, good friend who's referred to as auntie and whatever relationship you have with young people uh, to try and model those kind of skills and have these conversations that might feel like they're going to be a little awkward at first. But, um, you know, I, I do have to say sometimes young people can really surprise you mm-hmm. and you go into a conversation. And, and adults can get really nervous and we can work mm-hmm. ourselves up and think this is going to be horrible. And then, you know, um, and, and then it's not. And then it's a really good experience. And so I think it's just really important to understand that this is going to have to be a habitual thing. And um, another tip uh, for parents that are listening that really want to have this conversation and they're kind of nervous about it, um, particularly if you have teenagers, uh, still a really successful tip is to do this in the car because Mm. they can't run away. And they also, you know, car trips together are usually kind of just like on the way to school. You only have maybe five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. So um, it takes some of the pressure off because, you know, the conversation isn't just going go on for hours and hours. Nobody can run out of the car. (laughs) The other nice thing um, is that you also don't look at each other because somebody's having to watch, you know, the adults having to watch the road. So you don't have to make eye contact. And that gives teenagers, especially the space to make a really good show about how they're super not listening to you when really, I promise you, they are. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, 
trying to make it look like they're not. Um, so have these little conversations in short bits. Don't turn off NPR. You know, if it's a scandalous story that says the word sex, like let it play and then talk about it and, and talk about it in a way that's right for your family values. And so we, we, we kind of hit this um, question with a lot of assuming that it might be the first conversation and a fairly early on conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give any guidance for people that maybe have, have waited till long past 10 years old? Yeah, sure. And okay. uh, my number one tip for that, if you, if you are in a position where you've got older older kids and um, you want to kind of do a check and now I've maybe freaked you out a little bit, uh, don't, <laughs> don't run in there and ask a bunch of personal questions. Right. Like, do you watch porn? What porn do you like to watch? Where do you get your porn? Like, if you want to blow up your relationship with your young person, that's what you should do. You should ask those questions and they'll run away from you and be really, really upset and trying to never talk to you again. Because you have to remember that that's, that's not really the point of what you're trying to say. It's not to ferret out what your young person, what your teenager has done in the past. It's to try and have a positive effect on what they do in the future. And so to try and remember what it is you're actually trying to accomplish with that conversation. And I think in that situation, it's really just important to say um, something that that works really well for me is to say, you know, I personally, so you speak for yourself and it's modeling um, value-based decision-making out loud. Because remember, that's not something that comes naturally to teenagers. So you're trying to model what that looks like in real life. So I say, you know, um, when I choose to do X online, for example, you know, once I saw a video and it was really violent, it was like this violent pornography, and you can even just make up a story. Somebody sent it to me, and it was, I found it really disturbing because, you know, when I watch something like that, I realized that just by being a bystander to that kind of content, I was participating in it. Mm. You know, and I don't feel good participating in that kind of action and that, you know, my our family values don't support that kind of action. And so I hope that when you're seeing stuff online, whether by accident or on purpose, you realize that these are our family values. This is what I expect for myself. And then you kind of imply that this is what you hope your students, you know, your, your young your people students. expect for they're themselves they're, as well. They're your students. Yeah. <laughs> One last thing on this, before, although I do find, I don't have kids, but I find this fascinating. Um, there's been some recently been some great documentaries about uh, sort of teenagers and porn. Do you recommend any of those? You as can find ways a, into it or... So you can find a lot of them. I, you know, I usually you can you can Google, but at the same time, um, there's some really good resources online that can point you in the right direction. One of my favorites is um, sex um, sex etc. dot com, I believe it is, or it's like Answer. It's by Reuters University, and so um, when you Google, they've got a site for teenagers, and they've also got a site for parents. And even though I know p- saying the words Planned Parenthood can be politically charged for <laughs> Some people, most people don't know that um, Planned Parenthood isn't just a clinic. They do have a community education. They, they have community education initiatives, and they've got a lot of really helpful resources on their website. NPR also has done a lot of good work in um, reporting on new nonprofit projects that are trying to produce new resources. There's a couple out of California that have produced video series that are designed for parents and teenagers to watch these short videos together about topics like consent and then have a discussion about them. And those are, as I said, are really easy to find online with a quick Google search. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, if you, it, it just takes a little bit of work to look for it. Okay, we'll put some of that up um, on our show notes too for people that are curious about it. Awesome. 
For the woman who wants to look impeccable at work but has better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, not that there's anything wrong with pantsuits, the solution is M.M. LaFleur. They take the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling for today's busy, professional woman. And I can attest to everything in that sentence, both the luxurious and pragmatic aspects of it, and incredibly stylish. They're beautiful separates. A lot of them are named after female fashion icons of the 20th century. I like the Deneuve blouse myself. And almost everything that they sell is practical in the kinds of ways that only a woman would notice. It has pockets. Um, Everything is machine washable or almost everything is machine washable. Most of the stuff won't wrinkle no matter how much, you know, wrinkling you try to do to it. And I think that's because this company was founded by a woman, Sarah LaFleur. She was once your typical woman in finance whose closet was packed with blah feeling pantsuits. Again, not that there's anything wrong with pantsuits. Back then, she dreamed of a more inspired wardrobe for herself and all professional women that made her feel elegant, comfortable, and office appropriate. When she launched M.M. LaFleur in 2013, she made it her goal to put the fun and ease back into the ritual of dressing for work and to rethink the process of shopping altogether via the brand's Bento Box personal styling service. You fill out a quick online survey and one of their discerning stylists will send you a Bento Box of wardrobe staples and accessories handpicked for you based on your preference and lifestyle. Prefer tops with sleeves, as I do, since I discovered the hard way people don't like to see my tattoos on TV. Uh, They will send you those. Looking for work pants that travel. Yes, I like those too, and are truly flattering. That's a bonus. Need dresses that are machine washable and have pockets. Yes, I like those too, and M.M. LaFleur has you covered. Once your bento box arrives, you have four days to try everything on. Then keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try because M.M. LaFleur is not a subscription service. There is no commitment. Try a bento for yourself. Visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O.com. Let's actually skip to Felicia's question. Hey guys, so I'm very excited to ask this adult sex ed question because this has been a contentious topic of discussion in my relationship. So it kind of fits the theme of the pod. So whenever I start a new relationship, I like to get a full panel STD screening and ask my partner to do the same. My current boyfriend got tested and reported that everything had come up negative, but a few days later, After we had already started having unprotected sex, I made a joking comment about how relieved I always feel when the herpes screening comes up negative. And what he revealed was that herpes wasn't even included in his panel of tests and that he actually has always had oral herpes and cold sores and fever blisters. So I know that doctors don't always include herpes screening in your STD test. So I asked him to go back and ask for it specifically, but he was adamant that his doctor didn't think it was necessary given that he had never had any symptoms. According to him, his doctor thinks that the test is not accurate and that false positives are too frequent. My boyfriend does not believe that there are screening tests that can distinguish between oral and genital herpes, so he thinks that any test he takes will come back positive. 
And he doesn't want that to happen because he feels like he'll be forced to take Valtrex for the rest of his life. So what should I do? Should I keep asking? Am I wrong? Is he wrong? Uh, am I asking for too much? I'm really looking forward to some unbiased input on this. So thank you. I loved this question. This question is really interesting. Um, so it's because it's not just about STI testing. It's also about, um, you know, negotiating needs and expectations in a new relationship. Um, and that can be a complicated thing. And, you know, even even in an existing relationship, a, like, for example, a marriage of 20 years, you know, marriage or long-term relationships, kind of the key to success is that those partners have been able to consistently renegotiate expectations because, you know, inevitably expectations in relationships and needs change over time. So um, my first response to Felicia's question is to ask myself, you know, is her request unreasonable? Uh, and no, it certainly is not. It is not an unreasonable request. Um, I know that there's, it is true that uh, herpes tests aren't generally included on STI panels unless they're specifically requested because they can produce false positives. But at the same time, if somebody requests a herpes test, there's no reason to deny that request. And um, it seems like Felicia has also offered to financially compensate for any out-of-pocket costs for that test. Uh, so no, her her request for um, a herpes test is absolutely uh, perfectly reasonable. Um, there are two types of herpes, and type 1 does like to live around the mouth. Type 2 likes to live in the genital area. And the way I describe it to, to people is that they will, however, happily vacation in other areas. <laughs> so type 1 can temporarily spend um, a period of time in the genital area and vice versa for type 2 which means that barrier protection uh, is super, super important when anybody's worried about risk of transmission. And remember, mm -hmm. there doesn't, like any STI, frankly, there doesn't have to be a visible symptom for there to be a risk of transmission because our skin continu continuously sheds cells, whether or not it has symptoms of any underlying condition. So um, barrier protection, meaning condoms, latex condoms, polyurethane condoms, or internal or external condoms. Those, by the way, used to be referred to as male and female condoms. Now they're just internal condoms or external condoms. And uh, dental dams for oral sex um, are really, really important in, in mitigating the risk of transmission of herpes, both type 1 and type 2. Now, I think the more interesting part of that question is that even though Felicia's request, you know, is perfectly reasonable, that doesn't mean that her partner has to comply because, of course, no one ever has to do something with their body mm -hmm. that they don't want to do. And if Felicia's partner just really doesn't want to get a test, um, he can't really be compelled to do so. However, um, in Felicia's shoes, I see two options based on that refusal to get the test. I would either insist 100% of the time on barrier protection, so no more unprotected sex, you know, condoms, dental dams, et cetera, 100% of the time, because why should I put my body at risk just because somebody else doesn't want to get a test? Well, I shouldn't. I'm worth protecting 100% of the time, so I'm going to use barrier protection 100% of the time. And then secondly, um, if there's simply no way to renegotiate um, you know, Felicia's needs being met by a test and this person is just, 
you know, fundamentally opposed to getting a test, then I think it's just Felicia has to ask herself, like, does she is this something that she wants to go ahead with in the future, this kind of dynamic? And and how does she want to set up uh, negotiating expectations within the context of a relationship if this is going to end up to be long term? Um, Because both people in a relationship should have a reasonable expectation of getting their needs met. If this is a need that's just not going to be met, um, perhaps then it's time for a new relationship. In other contexts, when I've I've talked to people about relationships, including in the context of political differences, um, something that I think is really valuable is to frame one's uh, negotiations as um, asks and consequences, Mm -hmm. like requests and consequences, right? Yeah. Which is that you're never demanding anybody do anything, right? Because, yes, in a relationship, you should always have the right to say no. Mm -hmm. But if you do X, then I will do Y. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. right. I mean, so, you know, that that I think and uh, based on the context of the question, I think it would be really I'll, I'll say this. I think it would be really interesting to see the the partner's reaction if Felicia insisted on uh, condoms and dental dams in any sexual activity, oral, vaginal, anal, 100 percent of the time. Um, then the reaction to that insistence, uh, I think, would be really telling in whether or not Felicia wanted to continue the help, the relationship. Right. This is the thing I mean, my husband and I don't have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but we have these kinds of conversations when we're really stuck. Like, that's, all, that's actually also just a useful thing to be able to do going into any relationship about any subject, is to be able to, to delineate what your boundaries are and what the consequences for refusing to respect a boundary are. So that's exactly right. You know. It's really, really important. Boundaries are 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 actually key to successful relationships. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes I know that we've, you know, culturally grown up with a kind of implicit expectation that marriage implies some sense of ownership. But I like to think of it more as um as a lease. You know, when we get visiting <laughs> privileges, <laughs> which means boundaries are really, really key to making that a successful. It's a timeshare. That's what. It yeah, is. it's a timeshare. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You don't own that property. You just get to visit from time to time. <laughs> and that should be a really good experience. <laughs> okay, so that, let's get let's get to a, a slightly, it, it's going to seem like a fundamental question to a lot of people, but it's another question you and I talked about that a lot of adults have and maybe are, are scared to ask. Yeah. Here it is. Dear Anna Marie, I'm emailing you as an Orthodox Jew who recognizes that homosexuality and transgenderism are recognized as parts of reality by the Torah and therefore a part of God's creation. That said, I cannot understand transgenderism. I comprehend homosexuality, but I cannot wrap my head around how someone who is born a girl or boy, but then chooses later not to be, forget the social aspect of it at all. I want help understanding the biological and psychological reality. I'm really glad that um, someone sent this question because honestly, especially in today's political climate, this is probably the, one of the most common ones that people ask me. And, um, you know, when when the election first happened and when I saw um, a lot of the responses about, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric out there about uh, trans people and, and, you know, gay people and members of the LGBTQ community, um, you know, you— I think uh, there's a certain certain section of American adults who really wish that all of that, we just didn't need to talk about that anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, if the gay people would just go back in the closet, I would feel way more comfortable and I wouldn't have to talk about this, you know? And um, 
that's just not going to happen. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, I've been in, in classrooms full of eighth graders and uh, these questions about trans and, and what these different terms mean and what um, various labels mean and how sexual behavior fits into those labels are the most common questions I get asked rather than just about, you know, plain old STIs. So the cat's kind of out of the bag. And I just want to um, I just want to say uh, to those people that I, I try not to think of them as hateful or or I know that some people call them evil. And I think that um, I, I kind of subscribe to the theory that if you if you start to see people as inherently less valuable, then you're the person that loses your humanity, not necessarily those people that you're looking at. So I try to think, remember that those people just really feel at the desperately, desperately afraid. And, um, I, w- you know, I want to comfort those people because I-, I have to say, like, this cat's just not going back in the bag. Right. If I can I interrupt just really quickly, which is that I want to appreciate this letter writer for having made the intellectual decision that I'm going to accept this, right? Yeah, that exactly. Having decided that his moral, ethical, and religious stand on this is I'm going to accept it. I, he's now just asking, I, and now just admitting, I don't understand. Exactly, exactly. And so we have to be able to ask these questions. Right. And, and um, I, I, that's, I'm so glad that somebody wrote in with this question and actually had the courage to ask because it's a brave thing to do. Um, so... What it actually means to be trans, um, I'm actually going to start to try and maximize the level of understanding with what it actually means to be cis. Like, I'm a yeah. cisgender person. That's maybe the better way to understand it, right? Right. So that means, um, you know, I was born and the doctor uh, looked at my genitals, saw a vulva, <laughs> saw a vagina, and assigned me a female sex. And as I grew up, that just so happens to match up with how I see myself and how I feel inside and how I identify. And that's really a fundamental thing. There's sometimes um, a misunderstanding out there about, you know, like almost like a hypothetical, like some person reaches an age and then they just make a choice about who they are. But that's not the way that it works, right? I never sat down with myself as like a six-year-old and, you know, I was like, okay, now what am I? And I'm just, I've decided now to be female and that's how I see myself. That is something that I've always grown up feeling and knowing because that is a fundamental part of my identity that just so happens to line up with my assigned sex at birth and my biological anatomy. That lining up of things isn't true for every person. And for some people that are born, their assigned sex at birth uh, based, you know, on their genitals does not match up with the way they see themselves, the way they feel inside, and the way they fundamentally um, exist in the world as a person. And so I try really hard not to use the word choice because that um, is a really trivial term when we're talking about questions of self-identity. Um, and it just means the, the, the reason why we say trans, you know, which delineates change, is that a person who's trans, whose self-identity and gender identity and gender Um, uh, the way that they express their gender and feel about their gender inside and the way they see themselves doesn't match up with their assigned sex at birth. It's not that identity that needs to change necessarily. The person who is experiencing, um, you know, a different way that those things line up, uh, the thing that makes the most sense to change, depending on the person's uh, comfort level and what they want, is to... uh, 
is to, you know, some people have a surgery, for example, a gender confirmation surgery. Some people go through hormone hormone treatment. Um, you know, that's a very personal decision. But uh, what's true for, for people who identify as trans, um, they change some of their external factors uh, to match up more closely with their identity as they see themselves and, and, and as they exist in the world. So that's what it means to be trans. Right. And I want to point out something that I think it might be helpful for people that, that gets lost in the discussion, which is, again, trans means a continuum. Trans is change, mm-hmm. which means there's no one type of trans expression, no, right? not at all. It doesn't mean you become a man or you become no. a woman. There are no. sort of stops along the way. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. That, like we, you know, Parker Malloy is a, a friend of the pod, and she's talked about how, you know, you don't necessarily change everything. Not everyone gets That's the exactly plumbing right. renovated. You know, oh, she was so great on the pod the other week. I, <laughs> she I, was. I, yeah. She was so great. Yeah. You 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 make choices about what it is that you want to change. That's exactly right. And that's a really personal decision. Yeah. Um, for And it's know, something you wouldn't that, ask someone necessarily. No, as long as no. you know someone's trans, that's kind of all you need to know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and look, even if even if this stuff, um, even if, you know, I've given you that answer and for to somebody listening, if they don't feel like they still really understand um, you know, then the simplest way to think about this is that uh, if 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 you meet a person and they, you know, you just call a person what they want you to call them. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, we'll make it as simple as that. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what you think they appear to be. It doesn't really matter if you have an opinion on their name and whether or not you think it matches up with their face or whatever else. If a person says, you know, my name is X, these are the pronouns I use. You know, I feel like if we're fundamentally decent person and people and we're trying to, you know, build a society where we all have a modicum of expectation that we get along, then you just call the person what they've asked to call. You know, like my full name is Kimberly. I prefer to be called Kim. I don't see it as any different than that. I really don't care about your opinion about whether or not I should be a Kim or Kimberly and it's vice versa. And I want to get back to the specific uh, questioner here, the listener who asked, he wants help understanding the biological and psychological reality. There's really no way to do that until you sort of take in the stories of trans people. Like you and I can help a lot about what it means and about yeah. what the etiquette of of respect around this is. But I think if you really want to understand, you should be reading the autobiographies and memoirs of trans people. And that will be, and you may never understand. I want to, and again, want to say, having made the decision to respect um, trans people's legal, social, you know, existence and and decided to be an ally is the most important thing. (laughs) That's exactly right. Whether or not you understand, you may never understand, but if you want to understand, you need to look at their stories. That's the best way to get to that second step. That's exactly right. And look, you know, in general, I think it's really important that when we talk about trans issues and specificity that, you know, we really talk, um, that we really elevate trans voices. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a cisgender heterosexual, you know, mother of two kids in the Chicago suburbs. So, you know, I am very definitely an ally. Um, I'm not sort of a spokesman. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm i more here to say, like, this is generally what it means to be trans. This is a way that you can try and start to grapple with understanding it as a person who isn't trans. And I think, I, you know, and, and to make the point that in, even if you— we're lacking in understanding. You can at least protect modern civility until you get to the point where you feel like you understand. And then when you're really looking for those understanding, um, 
for understanding and deeper understanding of trans issues, then you really look to trans voices to gain that understanding. And I would say the people that I'm most familiar with are our friend Parker Malloy, uh, who you can follow on Twitter. Uh, Janet Mock has written a couple of memoirs that I really, mm-hmm. I, I just love her writing. It's it's quite good. She was a journalist for many years before she yeah. came out as trans, and it shows. <laughs> Yeah, and then look, there's even um, like like Buck Angel. I mean, Buck Buck Angel is a is a you know he, a controversial, but he's a he's a trans porn star and advocate um, and sex toy inventor. So you know he's always happy to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> he's always happy to talk to. So there's a lot of really good trans voices out there to start to grapple with understanding trans issues. And I just want to say, like in general, you know, me as a sex ed teacher, when this stuff comes up, it's having conversations with kids about what these terms mean, how can we all just be nice to each other and try to have some understanding. Um, And at the same time, you know, I always have to bring it back to, you know, the basics of of sex ed. And that means when we're talking about like STI protection and pregnancy prevention, you know, birth control pills, condoms, internal, external condoms, dental dams, none of those give a shit if you're trans or you're cis. Mm -hmm. You know, birth control pills don't have an opinion about your name or what you call yourself or who you are. Um, you should always speak to your doctor about how medications specifically impact you on a personal level. Sometimes hormone treatments can interact with, you know, hormonal contraception, obviously. But I think it's just really important that um, we need to be inclusive in sex ed. And that means we need to make space for everybody in the classroom as they appear. Um, but at the same time, we don't necessarily need to have like a trans-specific sex ed class unless the trans community specifically wants to go about that. And some people would because at the same time, we're all human beings and there's a wide variety of us and we have um, a lot in common. And that happens to be like condoms. You know, <laughs> condoms are one of the things that human beings have in common. And I, won't necessi- I don't think we need to play this question, but I'll just bring it up because it's, it's such a smooth segue. Is that someone did write in about safe sex mm. for trans people. And you basically just answered that, but you if you want to reiterate. Yeah, it's just really important. You know, um, as I said, like con- the thing about condoms, uh, whether they're made of latex or polyurethane, um, they're super stretchy. They can fit in lots of different shapes. They actually come in lots of sizes, which um, it's amazing how many people don't realize that the condoms do actually come in lots of sizes. I think the sizes are kind of amusing, actually. It's like average XXL and then <laughs> slim fitting. <laughs> oh, slim fitting. I didn't realize that that was like yeah, an option. Yeah, slim, slim, slim fitting. fitting. Mm. Um, there's no small condom because nobody would ever really <laughs> buy them. There's only small actors. No, wait. What? Exactly. <laughs> there's not really a market for a condom labeled size small, you know. Um, but condoms are, are stretchy. They're made of stretchy materials and they can fit a multitude of shapes and sizes and curves and all sorts of things. Same goes for internal condoms. And there's lots of different um, birth control options and contraception options available on the market too. And as I said, like medication, just like STIs, don't really um, have an opinion about who you are and, and, you know, whether or not you're married, for example, and whether or not you're trans. Uh, Medications are medications and they're really tools and they don't have an opinion in and of themselves. But they work the same for everyone. But you did say so that horm- if you're taking hormones, you need to bring that up yes. with your doctor yeah. if you and do that's any other medication. That, um, a doctor supervising right. uh, hormonal therapy for you know for gender reasons um, should be able to speak to right. specifically. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to a hundred plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. 
Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, free, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, to post a job for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. So I also wanted to ask you something that came about, uh, someone asked a question about something that came up in our first conversation, um, which was the whether or not virginity is a one zero, uh, whether or not it's a binary. Yes. That is a question from Eric. Hi, Anna and everyone. Uh, This is Eric from Jackson Heights, New York. The whole what makes you lose your virginity thing was interesting because I've always maintained that mine eroded over several months. I belong to an online forum and we recently started a thread to discuss virginity and I posted this. I always describe my loss of virginity as taking place over several months. First, I'd had to come to terms with being gay, although although I was never really straight, so I didn't ever sleep with a girl. By the time I was forced to deal with it, AIDS was a big deal but it had also become known how to prevent infection, condoms, and so on. So I was 21 in my first semester of grad school in a new town, conveniently in my own not-shared apartment, blocks away from Baltimore's gay bars, and I finally got up the nerve to start going to them, and I finally got picked up. The guy was no one's idea of handsome, but he was very good about the fact that I was super jittery. He brought me home and gave me a blowjob. The lesson I learned from that Well, this is not the right guy, but I'm definitely on the right track here. A couple of pickups over the next few months, and finally I had my first full-on, both of us naked, rolling around and doing all sorts of things, then sleeping experience. I walked home from his place early the next morning, finally sure that the virginity was gone, 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 with a grin on my face that you couldn't slap off. But here's the question that I might want to put in front of you guys. Is the loss of virginity a major milestone in personal maturity development? I know it was for me, and the few people I know who are still virgins well into adulthood seem socially stunted to me. Anyway, thanks. I love the show. I really loved the term um, that that listener used, like, my virginity eroded over time. I love that. (laughs) Can I just—I might steal that, actually. (laughs) Because that is excellent. That is um, such a really, it's a wonderful way to elucidate um, a lot of what people have experienced. Um, A lot of people experience kind of more of an erosion of virginity uh, rather than just a, you know, it's like, it's almost like you have your phone and then you lose it and you don't know where it is. Like you have your virginity and then you lose it and you don't know where it went. It's kind of, that's not really, it doesn't really reflect uh, most people's real life experience. But um I think I think it's really important that the 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 you know the listener asked whether or not um the loss of virginity results in some sort of emotional or psychological um failure to develop or you know like emotional stuntedness for example and I want to point out I think it's important to recognize sometimes here in America we can be really um naive about the fact that there's the rest of the world and 
lots of different cultures that don't necessarily um, have the same values or think about, you know, topics like sex in the same way that we do. That goes true for virginity. Um, you know, here in America, it's kind of like um, we we've, we culturally tend to view loss of virginity as kind of um, a really, really important destination on the road, you know, road from, you know, childhood to an adult. And it's almost some, to some people view it as kind of like the, the last stop on the road to adulthood. So, you know, um, I lose my virginity and now, now I'm no longer a teen. For example, I'm, I'm a woman. Um, you know, I, that might be true here in the States for some people, although I would hesitate, especially now when we look at demographic research about attitudes in younger generations, that's not necessarily true um, for younger people here in America anymore. And that's certainly not necessarily true in other cultures around the world. Um, one of one of my favorite countries to read about in terms of sexual attitudes, just because they're so starkly different from the way we think and talk about sex here in the States is, you know, the culture in Japan. And if anybody's interested in kind of cultural attitudes about sex relationships and dating, um, I'll just make a <laughs> an ask for a plug to Aziz Ansari's book, uh, Modern Romance that he wrote actually in conjunction with an award-winning sociologist. And it talks about, there is a chapter in there that talks about um, the way different cultures view sex, dating, and relationships. One of those countries is Japan. That included interviews with a lot of men in Japan, you know, in Japan. And it's super, super interesting. So for this li listener in particular, I think that uh, this listener would really like that book if they want to read more about um, cultural attitudes about sex and things like virginity and dating. And I think we can sort of answer this person's particular question. Is it is it a mile, major milestone in personal maturity? It is not. I mean, well, you know, it, it is, is the physical it. act is not. Right. No, it, it is. It, 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 everything is what we make it to be. Right. You right, know, right. like. Um, and so, you know, if you if you make it a big deal and if that's how you think of it, I'm not going to come in and be like, no, you're wrong. You know, no, of course not. But I would just hesitate. I would you know, it's that's not necessarily true. For other people, especially mm -hmm. when it gets, you know, when we talk about sex and, you know, sex involves a lot of different things, you know, power and submission and involves, you know, pleasure and sometimes pain, revulsion and elation, a whole bunch of different complicated, you know, messy emotional experiences all wrapped up into one. And it's really, really tricky um, because we're so used in this country to not talking about sex. It's really, it's tempting and convenient to just assume that other people uh, think about things the same way that we do and and particularly when it comes to sex and uh, you know that's just really not true I actually would point to this is sort of a funny thing but I wonder how do you feel about the movie the 40 year old virgin not a fan really <laughs> interesting well look I, I you know um I I love Steve Carell right I love Steve Carell, and uh, I can't remember the actress's name in that movie. And I love Catherine her too. Keener. Yeah, it's to be honest, it's not just my, it's just not my sort of humor. Okay. Um, I thought the movie, you know, like anything Steve Carell does, it, you know, my the rest of my family, my husband in particular, loves it. It's just not my sort of thing. Um, but that's not a commentary on what it's okay. trying to say. You know, because I think about what it was virginity. trying to say is actually sort of the point of it. It's, it is what you know, sex and emotional maturity are two different things. You know, and you know, I have to say, when we talk about stuff like this, you know, there is, um, there are some people in, the, you know, in the population, um, 
they usually self-identify as asexual where they don't really have any sort of desire to ever have sex. And a lot of people who are asexual, who have no real desire to have sex, you know, that's not really a problem except for the way other other people view them, you know, um, because it's it's it's. The, the way our culture talks about sex um, is is really problematic for people that don't fit into these uh, stereotypical um, categories that honestly are, were formed because they make some people a lot of money when it comes to, you know, Super Bowl advertisements. So um, it's just there, there are people out there that, that don't really ever really want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And um, I wouldn't say ever that— a, you know, people who are asexual are somehow emotionally stunted. That's I, I, not true. I wonder if like one one of the because I, I get what this guy's asking. Mm. You know, like that that sense of like, oh, I've I've come into my as it were, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've come into myself, um, uh, and how that can feel like a mature experience, a maturing experience. But I wonder if maybe what we're really seeing when we when we grant that. Uh, losing one's virginity, eroding one's virginity as a maturing experience or a mark of maturity is where what we're talking about is knowing what you want to do with your body as a mark of maturity. Whether that's have sex or not have sex, knowing what you want to do with your body is something that mature people know. That's exactly right. Yeah. Knowing what you want to do with your body. And then I think also... With all the with to, all the responsibilities that that entails, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how to interact with other people's bodies, right? You know, right. in a way that they give you permission to, yeah, absolutely. And that is a mark of maturity, right. you know. That is a mark of maturity for sure. For an asexual person, the mark of maturity may be knowing you're asexual. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Um. You know, kind of where I I sometimes think of it as the difference between knowing yourself who you are and asking the world who you are and waiting for an answer. Right. So I want to ask a move to a much more serious question now. Um, here it is. Anna, I am contacting you because I am a fan of the show, and I have known you to be a compassionate and wise person. I also know you have experience with abuse and want to know what advice you can give. A male friend of mine just confided in me that he was drugged and raped by two men about a month ago. I'm the only person he told until he told his sister today. He feels ashamed and thinks that it is his fault for going to a grinder hookup and then not leaving when he felt uncomfortable. I assured him that what happened was against his will and tried to help him realize that it wasn't his fault. I am also getting him contact information for a rape counselor I know and have left the door open to listen at any time. His roommate was his best friend where he lives, but unfortunately he has been a terrible friend lately. What more can I do to help him at this point? Having suffered such an incredible emotional trauma, I don't think he is dealing with it in a healthy way, and as one of his oldest friends, I want to help him. What is your advice, a concerned friend? You know, um, I I really want to say that, um, you know, this is the first time I've been asked a question just like this, um, and I honestly feel a little bit sick to my stomach that this kind of question, this exact question, is one of the most common questions that I am asked, um, not just by young people, but also by adults, because it speaks to um, a, 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 a really big problem that we have here in the United States that um, we're not really talking about. So um, thank you for writing in, and um, thank you for being such a good friend. Um, I, I, 
What I have to say is this, is that you have to, um, you should continually be emotionally supportive um, as much as you are able. Uh, you know, realizing that carrying this information um, around about your friend is also a burden. So, you know, you have to take care of yourself in being um, supportive to your friend. But to the extent that you are able, you need to continue being supportive. And what that means is um, leaving the door open for your friend to continue speaking with you um, and for you to continue to listen. Um, that reassurance that this was not your friend's fault is also really, really important because it absolutely wasn't your friend's fault. Um, sexual violence is uh, never excusable. It's just it's just not. Um, and it wasn't the fault of your friend uh, to be in that situation and, ex and experience a sexual violence. It's also, um, unfortunately, you know, it's not... Um, it's not also it's not within your job and it's not your right to take your friend's story um, to you know to the, to the police for example or um, to other even to a doctor on your friend's behalf um, your friend is an adult and so um, your friend should be able to take their story to authority figures like that like the police um, and and you know, that goes also for a therapist as well. When your friend feels ready to do that, you can continue to support your friend in making that action, but you can't make that action on behalf of your friend. I do also want to say um, that there is an excellent organization called One in Six. And so uh, the, it's the number one, uh, the word and, A-N-D, and then the number six. You'll find them online. They're also on Twitter and Facebook and stuff. And so um, they're an organization that exists for male survivors of sexual violence and the people that love them. So that means, um, you know, the, the listener who wrote in with this question can also get support from this service. And if the friend decides that they need support, um, this group can point them in uh, the right direction. I also know that currently One in Six is uh, running like an anonymous, um, you know, online group, mm -hmm. support group, and they do this periodically. So if if your friend were to, you know, reach out for support, there, um, your friend would be able to sign up for this group totally anonymously and then, um, you know, get help that way and work through some of those issues with people who are experienced with, um, you know, this specific situation. Uh, so that organization is super, super helpful. Um, and I also know that at the beginning of this podcast, you know, Rain, uh, we talked about mm -hmm. the National Sexual Violence Hotline. That's not just for people who have experienced sexual violence. That's also for people in this listener's position to have um, this news kind of given to them and then not know what to do with it. And it is not gender uh, specific either. Rain is for anyone. Yeah, Rain is for anyone. That's right. Uh, one in six is is. You know, specifically for men and male survivors of sexual abuse, male identifying uh, survivors, and then, you know, the people that love and care for those survivors. Um, but RAIN is for anyone, and they run a 24-hour hotline that anybody can call at any time and ask exactly these kind of questions and get more support and, and outreach. That number is 1-800-656-4673 or HOPE. And also, they have an anonymous online hotline, which is online.rain with two N's, R-A. Inn.org. And I just wanted to, to emphasize something that you mentioned, but addressing this listener question specifically, it sounds like one and six is this, but it is very important 
for you to take care of yourself and have a safe place for you to talk about this. Um, the listener, the person who's carrying around this information. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you're a therapist, um, someone who is is bound by confidentiality in, in whatever way, um, a clerical, you know, counselor, a spiritual counselor, um, someone who will be able to keep the secret that you have because the secrets are really hard, right? Right. It's, that's exactly right. Um, so, I, you know, this survivor of sexual violence, this person who has gone through this horrible experience, um, that. that they need support and they, you know, they're going to need support in the future and ongoing support. But um, this this listener who wrote in that's been confided in that um, is also going to need emotional support to go through this experience, too. And I want to point out the reason that there's there's a reason to do that that's for your friend, which is that to carry around a secret can make you more vulnerable and harder to deal with and more prone to doing things that might upset your friend. <laughs> That's that's exactly right. Like, this I mean, is not a selfish thing for you to do. No. So let's say you, you're listening and you have all these conversations right. and you haven't spoken to anybody about it and um, your friend isn't ready to go to the police or isn't ready to go to a doctor or isn't ready to go to a therapist and you're starting to feel a natural human response, which is, you know, frustration. Like, why aren't you just doing that? You know, and that that's a signal to you that you're reaching your emotional capacity for that situation at that time and that you need to engage in some self-care to build your emotional capacity back up so you can still maintain a supportive and good relationship with your friend who's had this adverse experience. Right. You're doing it for both of you. That's exactly right. And I also wanted to offer as someone who's been through um, both personal crises myself and also, you know, been been an ally to someone who's gone through it. And this is just maybe a heads up for any kind of like, you know, time that you're helping someone through a really intense, terrible problem. When you spend time with them, make it just okay time. Like it's just safe time. Like don't, you don't need to talk about it. You don't need to talk about anything. Right. Right. Like you can just say, come over and we'll watch season two of The Office since we're just talking about Steve Carell. You know, just make it, make space for this person to use however they want to, you know? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes, I know for me, like when I've been in terrible places, like sometimes people want to help. And they, that, they think that means it's okay to talk to me about this. No, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, make it okay to not talk too. Make it, is. Make it okay to not You know, it's, it's, sometimes silence can be really, really healing, even though silence can make us uncomfortable. Right, right. So I, I, I really appreciate you helping with that question. And I, I, I wish our listener and his, his friend well. Uh, I do want to end with something a little more uh, upbeat And that is going to be a question about pleasure. Here it is. How difficult is it for a woman to orgasm during sex? I'm a young college-age man with no sexual experience. I want to be a sensitive lover when the time comes. I want my future partner to enjoy sex as much as I do. I've read a lot about this online, and it is often made to seem like the female orgasm is extremely difficult to achieve. This is a bit discouraging. While most articles give lots of tips or step-by-step guides, I'm worried about my performance. I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well as any insightful tips. This is something that I'm sure many other guys also wonder. Can I just say that it is not hard for a woman to orgasm at all? And that I know I, I know the kind of articles that um, the listener is referring to. And 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 sometimes um, sometimes it feels like uh, 
here here in the states, we have such kind of a penis centric view of sex, right? And it ends up to be kind of like a utilitarian view of sex. Like there's sex, and then there's the orgasm, and then that that's the end of it. And um, sex is that sometimes, and it can be that if that's what people uh, enjoy, but it doesn't have to be that either. And just because um, you know people with vaginas, you know, I'll use women um, orgasm differently and have different <laughs> orgasm patterns and different patterns of arousal. Um, I wouldn't say that that makes it, you know, better or worse necessarily. It just makes it different. Sometimes uh, I've got to say, sometimes when I'm like talking about, um, you know, orgasm and pleasure and the intention, you know, I get, I get these questions a lot from, from young men and from men in general, like, well, okay, so how, how do I be good in bed? How do I make a woman happy? And sometimes I feel like I'm talking about a video game. Like I'm getting asked about a video game. Like, how do I level What's up the and cheat then code? win the prize like, at the end? <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, um, first of all, that's not really how it works. You know? yeah, they so should, they just... should have good manual dexterity though, right? I mean, that's, that's gotta yeah, be helpful. Yeah, and like... that's, that's definitely gonna be helpful. But it's like, let's just take a step back and reframe how we're talking about right. this. Um, so it's not actually hard for women to organize and I want to put um, there's a there's a really popular sex toy out there right now um, that's fairly new on the market. It's called the Womanizer, unfortunately. But I'm familiar <laughs> with that actually. Yes, and so it uses air suction um, directly on the clitoris to mimic oral sex. And um, statistically speaking, eighty percent of vagina owners climax with that device within three minutes of pressing the on button. So, you know, orgasm I'd like to capacity. mention our new sponsor, the Womanizer. <laughs> Go it's to the Womanizer. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, but it's to say that it's not, it's it's just different. Um, patterns of arousal and orgasm patterns are different. So, you know, it's not hard for women to have an orgasm at all. What it is... Di- Sorry, can I interrupt just no, a second? Which, one of the things I think they're also asking is it is... Um, is it hard for me to get a woman to orgasm? That's, That's what they're exactly really asking, right? right? So what I want to say How can is I like, do this? And what I would say just as a woman, female <laughs> vagina owner <laughs> is that maybe don't take take the emphasis off yourself for a second. Yeah. And how I want to be there when she has an orgasm. That's exactly right. <laughs> so the thing is, is that I want to say um, it is hard for a woman to have an orgasm with just you know, penetrative right, sex. Right. I mean, it is. It's difficult because of the way that we're generally built. You know, the clitoris has um, this visible little bud that can swell during sexual activity, particularly, you know, when that sexual activity is longer than four minutes, okay? So it can swell and get a little bit bigger, but, um, you know, a lot of the clitoris is kind of a nerve center and it's not the visible part. It's actually, you know, inside and behind the skin. So, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we talk about then the G-spot, the G-spot, which is sort of a myth and sort of not what people are really referring to, is stimulating the back of the nerve center through the vaginal wall of the canal. So we're talking about the same center of nerves. We're just talking about coming at it through a different angle, right? So um, when we talk about whether and how, how, how to get a woman off, um, I would say the first thing you should do is ask her, mm. you know, and it's, it's one of the things that if you generally, so when I do, you know, um, small group sex ed for adults and, you know, if they're, it's a woman only group, how few people, how few women have ever been asked that question mm-hmm. ever. 
you know, even I've talked to 55-year-old women who've been married and they've never been asked that question. So, you know, if you're wanting to um, get a, get your female partner off, if you're wanting to make her really happy in bed, if you want to know what turns her on and what leads her eventually to orgasm, the person you should start asking is, you know, her, what is she like? What is she not like? And, um, and then you can ask her to teach you how to do that. And that can be that can be super, 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 super sexy. Um, it's not just kind of like, okay, you get a magnifying glass and kind of a headlamp and you're like, okay, <laughs> now I, where do I put my finger? Like it, it can be really, really sexy. You know, show, show me what you like. Is this it? You know, do you like that? Do you like this? Um, and then, you know, go from there because every woman is, is different. Some people, for example, like a light light pressure on the clitoris and it's really, really sensitive. Other people like much harder pressure on the clitoris. Some people like certain patterns, you know, up, down, side to side, for example. And the only person who's really going to be able to answer that well is uh, the person who owns, who has the clitoris, right? If, and then if, if I can be, be other... so bold as to offer a metaphor that might work, which is that <laughs> it's like a favorite food. You don't presume to know what someone likes before you ask, right? That's exactly and also, and, you don't presume to just make it for them and then give it to them and then kind of walk away, right? Right. Like, and, you know, let, let's just, demographically speaking, especially when we're talking about, like, let's say college-age kids, like, the rate of, the age of first sexual experience in this country for younger people has actually been on the rise. It's been going up. So, um, you know, let's, if we're talking about for maybe a freshman in college, for example, and and let's say this freshman in college, it's a young man, and he asks he asks his female partner, he's like, what do you like? And if she legitimately says, you know, like, I don't really know, mm. um, you know, then then the response, you know, assuming that, you know, everything's consensual and everything else would be like, okay, well, you know, we're going to set aside an hour and you and me are going to figure this out. And then it, it becomes really fun. It becomes really sexy. becomes kind of a discovery process. And you do. You just, you figure it out. And, um, you know, that's why I would just say, like, when you think about uh, trying to, make sex pleasurable for a female partner, the person who's going to ask, be the most helpful is not, you know, men's health, the, the feature editor for the month of October in 2017. It's going to be her. It's going to be her that's going to be the most helpful source of information. And, and, you know, from your perspective, having an open mind and being willing to listen to what she says. I mean, there's a, there's a certain argument to be made that you say, um, well, what would you like? And then if you actually listen to what she says and then execute that, I mean, you're already 85% of the way there. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to go back to the, the, like, making a meal for somebody metaphor, which is that you keep asking, like, is this, does it need this, does it need that? Like, it seems like a silly thing, but, like, you can't taste it for someone else. And again, yes, all the different jokes that might go for tasting someone, but <laughs> you can't know what their experience is. And with food, we would never presume. We would never presume to know what someone likes or doesn't like without experiencing it for without their input. Exactly. And, you know, I'm glad that you're using the metaphor of food because I'm just going to be straight with you. Like when we when we look at orgasm patterns and efficacy rates, the, the people in America that have the least amount of orgasms and climax and sexual experience are straight married women. Mm. And we're talking by a huge <laughs> degree. I mean, a massive degree. We're talking less than 35% oh my regularly experience orgasm you know, within a monogamous, straight, heterosexual marriage. And I have to say, if you're just going to go, if, you know, if listeners are numbers people, um, the, the activity that's most correlated with 
with climax and with female orgasm is oral sex. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be honest. I mean, that's what it is because of the the way oral sex can and does stimulate the clitoris, which is for many it's women, I'm not like going to say for most. almost like they were made for each other. I'm just going to, you know. like they were made for each other. That's right. <laughs> so, um, and, and the activity that correlates least with climax is just, um, you know, penetrative sex mm-hmm. with the penis, especially the kind that you see in porn, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, the angles in porn are set up for the pleasure of the viewer. They didn't set those angles up to make the actors happy. Like the actors are getting paid to look happy. Like they're, the porn is for the viewer. So the, the angles and the positions that we see in porn are to maximize a viewer pleasure. They're not made to, porn isn't made to, you know, most accurately depict how female actresses most like to orgasm. Like that's just not how it is. So when we, when we look at the kind of excuse my language, but it's just kind of like jackhammering motion of a penis hammering a vagina in porn because most porn is, again, made and consumed by men. It's very phallic central and female pleasure is not really depicted in a way that it looks in real life. Um, That's going to be the activity that's least likely to result in an orgasm in real life within the context of a relationship. So that's why I say, you know, porn is porn and porn may have its place depending on your values and how you use it. But within the context of a relationship, if you're really looking for advice on how to make your female partner happy and you're a man, you ask her first. Mm -hmm. Ask her first and then you figure it out together. And you're right, Anna, like you should ask that question regularly because that's one of the other things that happens as relationships go on longer. Um, You know, things and people change. And arousal patterns um, for women in particular can change. So what worked, you know, pretty reliably six months ago, it might not work pretty reliably six months from there. And so, you, you know, you figure something else out and what does work. And that can change over time. So, again, like I started with this, you know, with the first question, Talking about sex should be more of a habit rather than um, just kind of a once-off experience. You know, people don't get married and talk about sex on the honeymoon and then never have to talk about it again for the rest of the marriage. Like, I know there was a different um, listener question about someone who is a middle age and has doesn't really have a sex drive anymore and doesn't really see that as a problem. But other people in, you know, magazines, whatever else, the culture kind of tells her that it's a problem. And, and you know, that's not, that's not really a problem. It's not a problem if you don't think it's a problem. It's only a problem if you think it is. And it's only really a problem if you're in a relationship where your partner has an expectation of regular sexual activity and you're no longer willing to meet that need, which is how we go back to that, you know, the other conversation about renegotiating expectations and needs in a relationship as time goes on because, you know, those things change. And so do ways of achieving orgasm, and particularly in long-term relationships. And I, I, I am friends with Dan Savage. I don't don't ever want to horn in on his territory too much, um, yeah, but I think exactly. he would he would agree there is no such thing as too much information about sex. So I appreciate everyone who wrote. You should also write Dan, um, yes. if, you, if you like. Uh, but we will we will do this again because there isn't such a thing as too much information about sex. There may be too the thing as too much sex. It all depends on what you want, as you said. But the information in the conversation should keep happening. And to that end, please, where can people go to find out more? 
Well, um, people can visit my blog. I'm still at Sex Positive Parents Chicago now. I'm going to be launching a new website, um, hopefully within the week, definitely within the next couple of weeks. Um, there's lots of different resources online. Dan Savage and his Savage Love Cast that he's he's been doing for over a decade now. Um, not the podcast, but the advice column is extraordinary. And still really, really good. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that Planned Parenthood, you know, doesn't just serve female clients. Planned Parenthood sees a lot of men, and they're actually one of the leaders right now in trans healthcare too, healthcare for trans people. They've got a lot of really good resources, including my new favorite thing for Planned Parenthood is anonymous texting service. Mm-hmm. So um, instead of getting you know questions from people that I've had classes with before, like my vagina's itchy, should I go to the doctor? Now you can text Planned Parenthood instead of me at like 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and Planned Parenthood will answer all of those questions. And you can even book appointments at your local Planned Parenthood from within the app. And yeah. all of that's anonymous. Well, as too. long as Planned Parenthood still exists, which is a, with the rest of this show oh, is don't kind even of get me about. Started. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. And we will, I'll just, again, put out there if, this conversation has triggered anything for anyone out there. Those resources are out there for you as well. The National Sex Assault Hotline, which is 800-656-4673-HOPE. That's what that last four digits is. Uh, 1-800-656-4673. Those last four digits spell out HOPE. And RAIN is available online at online.rainwith2ends.org. And also, I'll put a pitch out there for the Crisis Text Hotline which is 741741. And you can contact them with any kind of crisis or what to you may not seem like a crisis, but you're having um, emotional pain or anxiety about almost anything. They can help set you up with someone who can talk you through whatever it is you're going through. So um, hopefully this has been a relatively fulfilling and uplifting experience, despite some of the hard things we had to talk about. I really do appreciate your time, Kim. Thank you so much. Um, for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Anna. And that is it for the week's show. Thank you for hanging in with us. And I'd like to remind you, if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Ratings are awesome. Ratings and reviews are extra awesome. They help other people discover the show. We will be doing adult sex ed class again. Uh, and you should go ahead and feel free to email us with your questions. Again, with friendslikepod at gmail. We are also still taking any kind of relationship and politics questions. Please send those to the same address with friendslikepod at gmail.com. You might want to include an audio version of your question if you feel comfortable doing so. Those we especially like. Again, I'm at the Texas Tribune Festival. And, oh, just as important, all of the resources we talk about on this podcast will be available in the show notes on iTunes if you want to follow up with anything. And I think that's it. Have a good weekend. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast. A village in India where everyone's name is a song. A boiling river in the Amazon. A spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.